From the McCourney Institute for Democracy in the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Jenna Spinelli. And welcome to Democracy Works, our first episode of 2020. Happy New Year, guys. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to all of our listeners out there. We are back at it. We we did get to take a couple of weeks off, but no shortage of news. And and this is going to be a busy year uh, Mm -hmm. for for democracy and and politics and all kinds of things. So, um, you know, as as you guys know, and as as listeners know on the show, we don't necessarily talk about the horse race and the headlines so much. We tend to take a step back and look at the big picture. Um, So today we are going to talk about some of what we can expect in 2020, but through the lens of some of the bigger picture issues we've been covering on the show. My sense of what we're doing here when we're talking about this, too, is we're focusing on events that we know are coming up in this year and how these different themes might work their way into that. So, yeah, it's, it's a big year. Yeah. So, right? I mean, we know, for example, we, well, we now know that we have this this emerging escalation of conflict with Iran, uh, which has uh, been the start to the new year. Uh, we're in the middle of the primary election campaign. Of course, the 2020 election coming up. Uh, the census is supposed to be uh, and will be carried out in in 2020. Uh, and impeachment. Forgot about yeah, impeachment. Yeah, so yeah. So that's a that's a full plate. <laughs> that's that's a lot going on. That is all going to implicate democracy, and uh, um, in many ways, um, because all of these things are are so. Uh, unpredictable and and so volatile, it's just hard to really kind of have a sense of what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I thinking about we we've all been thinking quite a bit over the past few days about the emerging conflict with Iran and the uh, the uh, attack on the head of the Kuds that uh, carried out by a U.S. drone strike. And you know, maybe we should start there uh, by talking a little bit about you know we're going into this uh, potential major conflict with a you know with a big powerful country, uh, but we're doing it in the midst of coming out of a year where the president was tracked misleading the public. Numerous times, fifteen thousand times. Fifteen was that 15, in a year or, or no? Since, no, that's since, since, he's taken, since he's taken office, right? According to I guess the Washington, Washington Post. According to the Washington Post, uh, but you know, even just in the context of the last few days, uh, we've seen instances where the president is tweeting out one thing about this emerging conflict, and the Secretary of State is ah, don't really pay too much attention to that. Uh, there's a credibility issue here that's built up over a a period of time. There's both a credibility issue and there is also this sort of massive polarization where the president's political strategy has been, as we've heard many, many times, to play to his base, to play to his base, to play to his base. And, uh, you know, one thing that became clear to me watching the impeachment hearings is just how baked in feelings are about Donald Trump. They seem not to ever really move. And and so where I'm getting at is to is to talk about what this might mean as we go into this moment where the president is going to need to bring the entire country along on a, a potential conflict. Well, it is it is very difficult to make claims about how um, you are looking to 
um, uh, CIA, NSA, other kind of um, covert agencies for support for your action after you've spent um, virtually your entire political career um, trashing them, right? Well, there is that, too. And, and on that polarization point, I mean, maybe you could also make the argument that half of the country has pretty much been conditioned not to believe anything Donald Trump yeah, says. Yeah, that's what I mean when I right. say it's yeah. baked in. Right. And so this could just be yet another um, manifestation of that. Well, but I'm trying actually to get us to think about this not in political terms, not what it means for support for the president. But now we're at this point of national crisis where, you know, the president's power is the power to persuade and it's the power to persuade it's allies, it's the power to persuade members of Congress, it's power to persuade the agencies, it's the power to persuade the public. And it, at, at a time when people are going to look to the president, and my, my point anyway, is that I don't think he's laid the foundation for that. So, you know, one thing we've certainly seen since, since 2016 and, and on through 2018 is an increase of people speaking their minds, taking to the streets and, and organizing and, and protesting. You know, we've seen that through the Women's March, the March for Science, the March for Our Lives, many of which we've talked about on this show. We've seen uh, a lot of grassroots organizing happening in the states, like we talked about with Hedrick Smith when, when he was on the show. Do you think that we'll see uh, any of that organizing happening around Iran, around, you know, anti-conflict, anti-war, those, those types of things? Do you think it'll drive people into the streets the way some of these other things have over the past couple of years? I have a couple of thoughts about about that. One is a sort of, I, I sort of sense a protest fatigue. You know, there were some protests around the, around the impeachment that just seemed to, some of them were actually fairly large, but it's like at this point, they don't really seem to get all that much attention. Uh, you know, and also in terms of anti-war, I don't know. I, I'm kind of waiting to see. The Iranians are not in the eyes of most Americans seen particularly favorably. No, I don't know. What are your thoughts I, about this? No, I think, I'm, I'm really skeptical. of. No, I think as of right now, you're not going to see it. But I, I, I think your point about, you know, fatigue, yes, that's true. But now, because Iowa is only a couple weeks away, I think it's entirely appropriate not, you know, it, it's it's politically savvy to move protest into politics directly. And so if you are um, a person who is either, you know, completely in support of, of what the president has done or you are, uh, you know, completely against it, the right way in, in right now to engage that is through politics, not through protest. Yeah. So you're, you're sort of speaking from the perspective that this Iranian issue will be a major factor in the campaign. I think a lot of what we're seeing now is candidates and campaigns trying to harness some of that grassroots energy. And we're seeing that play out in terms of who's going to capture which support. Will the the Democratic Party coalesce around a singular candidate when it's come up with all these different groups and interests mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. things? And, you know, what what will that look like heading into November? Yeah, well, the small donor fundraising on the Democratic side is certainly something to uh, yeah, they've raised a lot of money. Well, so has Donald and Trump. so has Donald Trump. Yeah, different kinds of sources, but also a lot of it coming from small money. You know, that is some indication of the energy here. You know, you might remember before the 2018 election, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not all the protest and activism, many of it led by uh, young, led people. by women. Mm -hmm. No, led by oh, women. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. suburban you know, women. Yeah, yeah, we had a couple of people on the podcast that, that spoke 
Laura Putnam. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Laura, there was, uh, I'm also thinking Stella Rouse also, Mm -hmm. I think, talked about it. So that really did translate into high turnout on both sides. And I, you know, I expect we'll we'll probably see that, see that again this time, a high turnout election on on both sides. I think that's the one thing you can um, confidently predict is that these, the numbers for 2020 are going to be uh, dramatically high. Yeah. So, that, that, you know, that maybe brings us to another topic, Jenna, and, uh, and, and that is whether or not the country is really prepared uh, to conduct a high turnout election in a highly polarized environment where, you know, we know that the last one had all kinds of foreign interference in it. But we're also seeing the courts step in and strike some of these things down. Yes. I mean, not not all of them, but, you know, this issue of, of voter access certainly is is one that People will be be watching heading into to November. Absolutely, yeah. There's there's that, and then there's also just whether or not you know having a entirely decentralized system mm-hmm. of federal elections provides both the uh, infrastructure to you know allow everybody fair access to the polls and equal access to the polls. And I think we know that there isn't e- yeah. equal mm-hmm. access mm-hmm. to the poll across states and and even across counties. Uh, as well as to be able to secure uh, yeah. the voting systems. Yeah, and, and to be able to, to trust the results that, that come out. I know our colleague Laura, Laura Rosenberger and the um, Alliance for Securing Democracy works a lot in this area. We, we talked with her um, about that twice on the show um, since we started, and she works a lot specifically on Russian interference and uh, you know, definitely preparing for that and, and helping states prepare Um her colleagues at the, the German Marshall Funds um, have put together a list of some of the, the measures that states are taking to help secure their their voting systems heading into November. I, I just saw something uh, here in Pennsylvania. All 67 of our mm-hmm, counties mm-hmm. are now going to have some type of paper trail um, that, that happens as, as part of our voting process. Yeah, I mean, these are the mechanics are, are important. And yeah, a lot of states stepping up. It's only going to take, <laughs> you know, a screw up in uh, or a hacking or, or even questioning yeah. the results in one state to throw the, the whole election into question. And, and, you know, democracy really does depend on the legitimacy of its elections, the acceptance of uh, electoral results. You know, there's, I mean, I remember... I think it was 2018, Michael, where you said, you know, at this point, it doesn't even have to be a genuine uh, hacking. All that has to happen is for um, somebody to say, we did hack these results to throw things into chaos, right? So because people have become so convinced that this process cannot be trusted or that it's become so partisanized that you can't assume that the numbers are genuinely the numbers, then people are less likely to... um, to trust the result or to accept them, Or to even show right? up to vote. <laughs> well, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, uh, what I see... Not uh, this time. Not no. this time. Not this time. But um, you were, we were talking before. I mean, there's there are fundamental questions of legitimacy here. Uh, and if you don't have legitimate elections, or it's not even a matter of re- reality. It's a matter of perception, right? If people think or doubt that elections are legitimate, democracy is in big trouble. And you have that with respect to um, the election. You also have it in terms of the difference between 
um, the popular vote in the Electoral College, right? Well, yes. And, and you know, this is, this is, I think, a point that's kind of gotten lost in the whole impeachment inquiry as well. I mean, the reason that Trump's alleged actions towards Ukraine were seen as so concerning is because it was about the legitimacy of the mm-hmm, election. Mm-hmm. It was about in, in encouraging a foreign power to uh, interfere in the election. And one of the things going forward that I think is really going to be of concern to American elections is the fact that in order to defend Donald Trump on this, many Republicans have basically taken the position that that's okay. That's okay. And so where does that stop exactly? But it does strike me that that this argument that this doesn't matter is also reflected in what you're seeing already with respect to um, um, partisan um, um, advertising, right? So you're seeing people edit Joe Biden's comments in ways that are just fundamentally oh, well, false. Well, you know, these false videos are uh, that is going to be a real problem right. in this election. And, you know, people who are basically getting their news from Facebook, which is a disturbingly large number of people. Yes. But this wasn't Facebook. This was put out by the RNC and by uh, Trump's uh, presidential campaign. Well, you know, this is also because there's just no longer – there is no apparatus for overseeing America. Well, the FCC or FEC, I should say, is just basically toothless now, the, right? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and it wasn't very – didn't have a lot of teeth to begin with. Right. <laughs> but now it's absolutely... Right. But, but so let's let's be clear about what we're talking about. I mean, there is, first of all, the technology has advanced to mm-hmm. the point where you are going to see fake videos and it's going to be very difficult for people to to sort them out and to figure, you know, to figure out what's true and what's what's not. They have also been conditioned by three years of fake news, fake news, not to trust the news, not to trust the mainstream media sources when they come out and say that that this is not true. And yeah. we've we've seen Facebook in particular come out and say they they are actively not going to do anything to to regulate or, or remove or, or otherwise police this content because they think it should be in a, in a democracy. It should be the, the marketplace of ideas that, right. that and, rules the day. Yes. And, and, you know, let's be clear that that the Democrats are capable of doing, of doing some of this, too. Can to I me, get to me, me? The larger issue is actually this technology, which is going to allow for really misleading kinds of videos to be out there. Facebook standing up for the marketplace of ideas just happens to be the position that makes a lot more money for Facebook. And, and you know, I, I just don't put any credence in that point of view. Yeah. So, you know, we talked a bit about Facebook uh, on earlier, earlier yeah, we shows. Yeah, uh, we had Matt Jordan on, mm-hmm. our colleague here from, from Penn State. And yeah, talking about how, you know, Mark Zuckerberg says every chance he can get about how Facebook is promoting democracy and building community. And there are certainly ways that that happens. But there's also, as you were saying, Chris, that mm-hmm. it also happens to nicely align with their their profit structures and advertising. Well, and also, I think we're really coming to understand uh, the important role that Facebook played in mm-hmm. in the, in the uh, last election in terms of uh, spreading misinformation, and and also the fact that you know the the Trump campaign in particular is investing very heavily. In, f- oh, in Facebook yeah. advertising right. and in different kinds of social more, media more advertising. More so than any of the mm-hmm. other Democrats. Yeah, yeah, so the role that they're going to play in this election is uh, is is important. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and their, not... their attitude towards it is concerning. Right. So Because to... I don't think they like to acknowledge quite the role that Absolutely they're not. Quite the role that they're playing. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, so to, to shift gears a little bit um, in, in terms of, but, but still keeping in this theme of, of confidence and participation, the other thing that we know is going to happen this year, and in fact is already starting to happen, is the census. Um, and we are in the, the decennial census, so we're at that every 10-year mark. Uh, April 1st is Census Day. Um, I know we talked about the census. One of our very first episodes was with Jenny Van Hook, a, a scholar here at Penn State and former member of the, the Census Advisory Board. But it's a national authority on yeah. the census. Yeah. But, you know, even here there was, there was, and I think probably still is, a lot of confusion about is there going to be a question about citizenship on the census or what are the implications of that? How much should people trust in being able to to give their information out when the the census worker shows up at your door, when you get the card in the mail or, or voting online? Yeah, I mean, I think the broader question, I mean, my understanding is that the census, that the citizenship question is not. It's, it's off. Is, is not on there, uh, but that they are matching up the census with data from Homeland mm-hmm. Security to try to identify citizens. I think the more important issue uh, and maybe the maybe the work has already been done on this by bringing up the, the citizenship question in the first place is whether or not people feel comfortable and confident responding to the census and whether or not the infrastructure is really there to conduct a, a thorough and accurate census. And I mean, here I do have concerns because one thing we have seen over the last several years in, in all kinds of ways is this administration's distrust of the bureaucracy, belief that uh, there's too much government, that, that uh, I mean, Tillerson will not be remembered for a whole lot as secretary of state, but he will be remembered for gutting the State Department and that he was brought in largely to do that. And we see this throughout the government. There are unfilled positions. There are, there are not a lot of people there. Now, part of that is, you know, and we could talk about this in maybe a different context, part of the impeachment, it's part of the Iran, you know, they don't, that this administration doesn't follow standard procedures and decision making and all that. But in terms of the census, you know, have they hired enough people to do this? Is the, is the capability of the, of the government and the Commerce Department? I mean, Wilbur Ross is, is is he have, do we have confidence Mm -hmm. that he's Mm -hmm. got control Mm of, of, what is a very important undertaking? The, the argument I would want to make is that, um, I mean, I, do, I completely agree with you that there is this kind of, when you start, when your administration is premised on the idea that there is this deep state. Right. You can't trust them. Right. The argument is that there is no nonpartisan dimension to American life and American government. I think there's been a sustained effort to delegitimize many American institutions that were long seen as largely nonpartisan. It's why I think there's going to be a lot of distrust among the American public at a, uh, for the administration and what's being said at a time when <laughs> it's really important. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the census, you know, so so one one big question, of course, has to do with the ability to carry this out in a really competent, thorough manner. And I think there's good reason to be skeptical of that. And then there's also just what the implications of the census will be when it comes out. And you know, it's obviously it's important for how federal money is distributed for congressional representation. But but I think it's important to note that the census is going to capture some really important developments in American life. Uh, one is the increasing 
You mean just demographically? Just, well, part of it's demographically, and that is, of course, that we are going to be much more of a minority country than we were than we were ten years ago. And we're leaving the rural areas. And we're leaving the rural areas, so that you know we're going to have even greater concentration of population in a small number of states, which is going to mean that institutions like the Senate will be even less democratic than the, than it is right now, mm-hmm. if that's possible. No, it's absolutely possible. <laughs> yeah, well, and that it also is because we'll see it. Right, yeah. and, and it's that, inevitable. That um, that it's, could. It's unlikely to happen this. Well, no, it could happen this election. If it were, if it were to happen that you know um, Donald Trump were to again win the presidency because of the electoral vote, but electoral lose the college, po- electoral yeah. college, but lose the popular vote by you know six, seven, eight percent. Um, Again, it's hard to see how that doesn't end up as a legitimation crisis for our democracy. Eight's a big number, but I certainly have seen people that sort of know these things, Nate Cohn and and, uh, Nate Silver, the Nates, have both both talked about how it could easily be six percentage points. That would be huge. That's millions and millions of people. And, and, you know, it is therefore necessary for, for one party to... Basically, say that a lot of people just don't count in order to legitimize well, their own election, or that democracy is not all that great. It's not the it's not the foundational objective of the American political system, and um, that it ends up with. Uh, or it, it leads to political ends that are not legitimate. And I mean, you're forced to defend that, right? Well, and. And the framers did. I mean, let's let's right. Let's acknowledge that. I mean, part of the part of the reason for the Senate, part of the reason for the Electoral College, was seen as this sort of uh, break. Break. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. This break on popular passions. Mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. Uh, 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 these this break on democracy. The problem is, and I, I believe we've talked about this on some shows. The overall trend in American political history has been towards greater democracy, mm-hmm. towards uh, greater suffrage, towards greater participation. And, and so that pattern runs up against the fact that some institutions are actually becoming less democratic over time. And the Senate in particular, but also the Electoral College the, the, from these sort of both the population shifts and the way that the parties have now aligned as sort of urban rural, you know, the, the, the implications of the rural, urban rural division. The only only thing I want to mention is, that, you know, the the biggest Example of that is the uh, 17th Amendment, which made direct election of senators. Before that, they were chosen by the state legislatures, which was there in order to make the Senate um, that much more removed from the popular popular right. Uh, and this was will. intended to bring them closer. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole trend in American history has been Correct. towards yeah. greater participation, towards greater uh, equality. Yeah. Right. Uh, women yeah. were given the vote. Eighteen-year-olds right. were given the vote. Right. African Americans were given right. It's yeah. Free, yeah. The other kind of unknown right now, and I think we we talked about this um, a little bit with with Stella Rouse when she was on, and and some of our other guests as well, is that uh, young people are increasingly politically independent. They're not. They're choosing not to affiliate with one party or mm-hmm. the other. Mm-hmm. So how is that going to reshape well, things moving forward? Yeah, they are resistant to partisan labels and voting very democratic. All right. And that's that's normally what happens with independents. They say, oh, I'm independent. I don't. But then, you know, in terms of their behavior, far more often than not lines up as 
uh, partisan one way or another. But but I do think, I mean, Jenna's premise here is an important one, and that is that this uh, the younger generation is increasingly alienated from the political parties as the parties have become more polarized, as politics has become more caustic. I mean, mm-hmm. there's been all kinds of uh, different uh, evidence that, that points to this, the reluctance of young people to get to participate in politics, to want to run for office. I mean, go over office, all kinds right. of things mm-hmm. like that. Now, clearly in 2018, their turnout was high. 50% higher than it was in 2014. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the uh, it, it seemed like the uh, gun control issue and the fact that this was a generation brought up in lockdowns, mm-hmm. which, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not ducking under their desk to avoid, <laughs> to nuclear save themselves in nuclear attacks, yeah. but rather going through, uh, <laughs> I can't even imagine going through these mm-hmm. lockdown drills. So they have been involved. We don't know that that involvement will be sustained. And I think of great concern to the Republican Party has to be that if it is sustained, I mean, this they're like 80 percent, 20 percent against Trump right now. They're mm-hmm. our strongest demographic, right. especially right. young women. My gosh. Right. And and seniors are going to I think it was Putnam who said uh, seniors eventually exit the voting rolls, which is a really nice say of way of saying they're going to die. Yes. <laughs> but so, so yeah, the demographic, demographic trends are not in the Republicans' favor. Um, but yeah, if, if it were to happen, because I don't, uh, my strong expectation is that young people will vote in the 2020 election. If they do, and if there is this... Um, yes, I agree. This increase, this... Right. This, even greater gap between the popular vote and... Then you're going to see... Then I don't know what you could... Right. I mean, you can explain as much as you want that this was the framers' design. But uh, what I think you'll just see is a a kind of uh, withdrawal from the the political... What what is the point of this? So as if it weren't uh, a big enough year, that just makes it that much bigger. (laughs) Right. Uh, the the other thing that the the census kind of leads to is is reapportionment and and redistricting, which I know we've talked a lot about redistricting and gerrymandering on the show, and I know that that won't happen until next year. But thinking about this kind of urban rural divide, I mean, how do you draw a map that has any semblance of of fairness, given that the the country is so split in so many ways already. I think that's something that looking certainly into 2021, that's something that people will be be grappling with as they try to redraw all these maps. Yeah. Well, avoiding your question about how to draw the maps. But one thing I do think is important in terms of democracy over the last year or so is that the American public seems to have become more involved, more engaged, more aware of gerrymandering, of redistricting, of the process, about how it's done, about the legal issues that are involved, about getting involved with it at the grassroots. There have been some referendums in some states that have moved away from partisan gerrymandering. There have been some court decisions in the states that have a moved away states, from it right? in a number yeah. of mm-hmm. states. So, yeah, this will be a, a battle royale in, in 2021. I think it will be one that the Democrats will not quite abdicate the way that they did. In 2010, 2010 with just, yeah. you know, profound consequences for the uh, for the party going forward and for Barack Obama's legacy. I think I think we've seen something different around this issue and we'll, we'll likely see something different in when the redistricting comes around. Drawing these districts is not something that is um, uh, straightforward, simple. There are a number of objectives there, and they don't all line up the same way. So my point is that... 
redistricting is as much an art as it is a science. It's a, it's a matter of just looking at it and saying, this strikes me as fair, right? And, and um, it is extremely difficult to come to fairness when um, the, the population is so polarized and there's so much distrust of uh, po- politics and political institutions. Well, and let's, let's face it. I mean, redistricting has a legacy of being used to dilute minority voting mm-hmm. power. So there are all kinds of different values and, uh, and motivations that come into the redistricting. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about, well, this is just easy. Just make the most competitive districts. Right. But, you know, we also saw good reason at certain points in our history for having majority-minority districts, right. which were not necessarily competitive. Right. And, and, you know, one reason I don't really embrace the term gerrymandering, which comes from this idea of a district that looked like a salamander, right. so therefore it and had it to be bad. Average Jerry, yeah. You know, mm. it depends what values you're bringing to right. this that's, as to whether or not point. the particular shape of it is bad or not. I think mm-hmm. just looking at the shape of districts and saying, oh, this is necessarily bad bypasses important questions about what it is where we should and are trying to accomplish. These these are political questions. These are political questions, but they go to the heart of the legitimacy of elections. And again, without legitimate elections, you don't have a legitimate democracy. That takes me around to a topic we haven't really talked about very much. And and that's where I think that within that in a democracy you focus on process and procedures and not so much on people and and individual motivations. The process has to have the appearance of fairness. And the process has to have the appearance of transparency. I think this is true in lots of different circumstances. But if you get into the, you know, the guts of what did we learn in this whole Ukrainian scandal? It was the abandonment of interagency processes within the foreign policy decision making that, you know, that that were had been established over many administrations with Congress over many years to appear, you know, this is fair. This is where we're taking in all kinds of information. We're getting the widest swath of information. We're drawing on the expertise that exists within our government because that's what democracies need to be able to do, to draw upon the apolitical expertise. I um I- Matter not angels. I disagree almost completely with that because I don't think you can get fair processes without people who are committed to fairness. And um, and so in the in the Clinton impeachment, you had Trent Lott and Tom Daschle um, come together and agree on fairness. And without that agreement, without those individuals who were committed. As partisan beings, as people, political actors who are committed to saying, you know what, this is bigger than you and I. This is about the Constitution and the history of our republic. And so we have to make this fair. We don't disagree. I agree with you completely. All right. But I think that is about people. It's about people who are committed to uh, doing the right thing. And if we don't have that, then there are no processes or procedures that can save us. I think this might get get around to something Charlie Dent said when he was on the show. I think that a lot of Republicans, he might argue, really feel this way, but they feel like they can't say so publicly because they don't want to go against the they don't president lose their seat. and it's that's the whole real, separation of parties know? versus separation of powers right. mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's I think something too to to watch depending on on what happens in, in November. Does 
does that that kind of sentiment continue? Well, you know, this is a consequence, and this takes us right back around to where we started, of ever-increasing polarization, mm-hmm. of the fact that people are more and more likely to see their side in tribal terms and the other side as, you know, really as, as enemies. Enemies, not uh, opponents, enemies. And yeah. the fact, and I think this is, you know, going forward, I, I, I think the the most concerning aspect of our democracy. And that's what, uh, that's a sort of epistemological division that exists in the country where we're not operating with anywhere near the same set of facts or understanding of the world because of these sort of information Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. silos. I I completely agree with that. However, I would blame the the, um, left-leaning postmodernist movement for this because it basically just gave people the opportunity to say, well, facts, you know, everything is power and and there are no such thing as, there's no such thing as objectivity. Granted. And and that has led us to where we are. Yeah. Yeah. And this is going to be a problem. It is a problem. (laughs) So to kind of bring this in for a a landing, as you like to say, Chris, so it it is... He says that. You know... It's going to be a heck of a year. Yeah, and it is... I'm already exhausted. <laughs> I, I think it's worth remembering, though, and we've seen this play out in our, our listener survey that we did. It is not everyone that is part of, fully kind of part of this, like, epistemic polarization. And I think it's it's our role and something we're going to, to continue to do is to try to look at some of these issues in a clear-eyed way to help people really understand what's going on. Uh, we, we have an exciting new project we're going to be launching in the spring where we're collaborating with some of our, our fellow podcasts from across the political spectrum to help kind of amplify that even further. A teaser from Jenna, but more news coming. Yeah. I just want to say, I mean, the the argument about uh, this is a, an epistemological problem. When um, Nancy Rosenblum mm-hmm. and what was it? Russell Muirhead. Russell Muirhead was were on. They were talking about the the core belief in democracy is that there is a common sense epistemology that nobody right. is is um, glad to bring that up. Is yeah. is unable to get their hands around this and to act responsibly as a democratic citizen. It is going to require of all of us um, a diligence and a, um, a, a cognizance that, that we are going to be lied to and we are going to be manipulated. And we have to stand up against that and, and not for the sake of one party or another, but for the sake of our democracy. Yeah, well said. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will certainly do our part to, to do that and hope that... Uh, Listeners will do the same, and there will be no shortage of things to talk about in the next 12 months. And, and I hope our listeners will continue, as they did in the survey, but can do through uh, through email or through our webpage to let us know how, how you think we're doing. And what we can do better. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so from the uh, McCourtney Institute for Democracy and Democracy Works, I'm Jenna Spinelli. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Michael Berkman. Happy New Year. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU.
For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.